We're going to look at the days of Noah this morning. The days of Noah. Interesting time. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we are continuing this incredible drama, this incredible saga, if you will, of mankind on the earth and the warfare in which we are embroiled. You cannot lose sight of the prophetic word in chapter 3, verse 15, about the warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That warfare continues, and we are right in the middle of it. But we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be intimidated. We need to be bold in our faith, confident in our God. Because as you read the Bible, you see again and again and again and again God's faithfulness to his people in the midst of the warfare. The first age of human history, from the beginning up to the time of Noah, we're going to see is going to be brought to its climax and also to its tragic conclusion, the very first stage of human history, all in the days of Noah. The sin disease which began with Adam and Eve, began to show its true ugliness in the character of Cain. Sin began to work its way out, and we saw it in Cain's life, in his character, as he murdered his brothers, he covered up lack of repentance. That sin disease began to mature even more in the godless civilization developed by Cain's descendants, the seed of Cain, the seed of the serpent. And then finally, it has descended in such a terrible morass of wickedness and corruption that only a global bath could cleanse and purge the earth. This is how wicked and how vile things have gotten that God is going to destroy all all life that has breath and he's going to destroy the earth itself. There's a verse that says, in this passage in chapter 6 of Genesis, that God is sorry he made man. That is an indictment if I ever heard one. Sorry he made man. Now the characteristics of these awful, tragic days that we're going to read about here, they will be repeated. And the Bible says that the characteristics of these days are going to be repeated in the last days of this present age. We learn from the days of Noah. It's vitally important, I believe, from the standpoint of both understanding past history. This is a historical account. This is not just some story. It's not a myth. It's not an allegory. This is history. The whole geologic phenomenon that testifies to it and more and more and more geology and geological sciences and scientists are attesting to the fact there was a worldwide cataclysm. The evidence is too overwhelming. There's an excellent book by John Morris and and Whitcomb called The Genesis Flood. (laughs) Tremendous book which will give you substantial answers if you have questions that matter. It's important for us to understand from the standpoint of history. 
that this was a real event. Because it answers not only the, the questions uh, about our, our geology and the age of the earth and those kinds of things, but it also answers questions that our behavioral scientists pose to us. Is man really basically good? Has the earth been around billions of years? Has everything gone on just as it has from the beginning without interruption? You gain new understanding, new knowledge. There are new implications to be drawn about the history of the world, the history of man, and the very nature of man. We learn from history, don't we? So it's important to have a good understanding of history. But secondly, and just as importantly, it's vitally important that we seek guidance for the future from studying the past. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, learn, learn from the past. Don't repeat those same mistakes. Understand human nature. Understand our tendencies. We need to understand the events which took place in the days of Noah. Two days before Jesus' crucifixion, his disciples asked him this question, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 3. He says, What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? In the whole of the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, known as the Olivet Discourse, talks about the signs of his coming. And Jesus points to a number of signs all of which occurring together in that generation that would see those signs would be the sign that they had requested. You read that chapter, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And Jesus says in the latter verses of that chapter, he says the signs, all these signs, would be climaxed with this prophetic warning. Now if you have your Bible with you, look quickly at Matthew chapter 24. Verse 36. Jesus says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So when the second coming and judgment falls, no one knows except the Father. And then Jesus says in verse 37, As it was in the days of Noah. So he points back to this historical event. Jesus is giving credibility to the account of Noah and also to the flood. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now notice verse 42. He says, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Keep watch. The idea of keeping watch is to know what you're watching for, and hence we can learn from the days of Noah. If you look with me at this chapter, chapter 6, first couple of verses, we're told that when men began to increase in number on the earth, the implication is that men were rapidly beginning to multiply on the first face of the earth. 
and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them as their wives. Sons of God. Now I want you to notice this. Sons of God, daughters of men. Sons of God, daughters of men. Sons of God implies created beings. Daughters of men implies beings born. Born of men. Who might the sons of God be? Who, who are these beings that apparently were created, not born like the daughters of men? The Hebrew, Hebrew word translated in the English sons of God, bene Elohim. That word is translated angels in other places, notably three different places in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, and Job chapter 38, verse 7. We're going to look at these verses. Job chapter 1, verse 6. On the day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Same word that's translated here in Genesis, sons of God. You go to the next verse, chapter 2, verse 1. On another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And then again in chapter 38, verse 7, we see the same, same word being used. Now, if you go back to the Hebrew text, you read it's this identical word, which leads us to believe that the sons of God were, in fact, then angels. What kind of angels were they? Well, fallen angels. How do we know that? Well, we have to draw that out from the Scriptures. And also, uh, if you look at ancient, other ancient writings, the the men who translated the uh, Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, known as the Septuagint, all those who made those translations uh, believed and placed that meaning on that passage that these were angels, the sons of God. Josephus, the writer of the Jewish history for the Roman Empire, also interpreted it that way. The writer of the ancient apocryphal book Enoch, other ancient Jewish interpreters, writers, rabbis, the early Christian writers interpreted sons of God as angels. Now remember, why would, why would this occur? Is it just that these angels lusted after the women? Was there some other diabolical plot you think may be in, in, involved in this thing? Don't forget that the that the seed of the serpent would be at war against the seed of the woman. Interesting that they choose women to cohabitate with, if in fact these are fallen angels. Satan had not forgotten God's prophecy. He had not forgotten the prophecy from God that a promised seed of the woman would one day destroy him. He knew that was coming. He knew his fate. He was going to do everything in his power to somehow avoid that. He planted his own seed, remember, in Cain. We saw in 1 John last week. John even records that Cain was 
belonged to the evil one, was of the evil one. Planted his own seed in Cain and Cain's descendants. But God preserved that line of the true seed, the seed of the woman, through who? Who did God then utilize? Seth, wasn't it? Cain killed his brother Abel. Abel, his sacrifice was pleasing to God. He was honoring God. He was doing God. He presumably would be the seed of the woman. Cain kills him, no doubt incited by, by the devil and jealousy. And then Seth is born. God preserves the line now through Seth. Noah, when Noah was born, his father Lamech, if you recall the prophecy in chapter 5, verse 25, 29, Lamech prophesied that comfort, comfort concerning the curse would come through Noah. Noah. So Satan devises another plan, another scheme to destroy the seed of the woman. He would completely corrupt mankind. He would completely corrupt all of mankind before the seed of the woman could be born and destroy him. This is, this is incredible. This is absolutely amazing when you see the magnitude of this scheme. Paul says we are not unaware of the schemes of the devil. He is always plotting, always scheming. We're told that men were being, being born. Men were multiplying rapidly on the earth. And so Satan, by implanting his own seed in humanity... Fallen angels could then breed a race of demon men. You say, oh, I can't believe that. Why not? Do angelic beings have the power to take on human form? Yeah, we see that all the time in the Bible. Do those beings also have the capacity and the ability somehow to not only take on human form, but to perform human functions? I mean, we see the angels that appeared... To Abraham, they ate food. They, they had a dinner with uh, Abraham. They could do these things. It shouldn't be a stretch for us to believe that if that's possible, if they can do those things, that they could possibly also interact physically with women if there is a diabolical plan and scheme. If they could infect the human race in such a way as to create not just sinners, but demon men. If the sons of God and the daughters of men, if the offspring of those unions could, could produce that kind of being, they would infect the whole human race. And they would have to be destroyed because they're unredeemable. Look with me at... Um, First uh, Peter, some of you recall you were with us when we studied First and Second Peter. I just want to refresh for you these passages. First Peter chapter three, verse 19. Speaking of Christ, by the spirit or the power of the Spirit, verse 19 says, "He went and preached to the spirits in prison." That's important. The spirits in prison. Who were those spirits and what prison were they in? 
And he goes on and he talks about them and he says, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So it's during the time of Noah, there's some spirits who apparently disobeyed, did something, and they're in prison. Now turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. Now we have another reference. This is again Peter referencing. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now what angels would that be and what sin did they commit? If he didn't spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And the word for hell from the Greek is Tartarus which the Greeks believed was the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell. So they must have done something incredibly vile and wicked to be put in the deepest, darkest, hottest place in hell. Putting them into gloomy dungeons. Again, reflecting back in 1 Peter, when he said that they were in prison. To be held for judgment... Now, are there demons around? Not all demons are, are in these gloomy dungeons. There are demons around all over the place, aren't there? So not all demons are locked up. There are some demons who are locked up. They've done something awfully bad that requires them to be locked up in the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell. Gloomy dungeons awaiting judgment. Who are they and what did they do? Turn to the book of Jude. Verses 6 and 7. And the angels, again, now Jude's referring to angels, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority or literally their own domain, but abandoned their home, These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So again, there is a reference now to angels who are bound up in in waiting for judgment. What did they do? Are these the same angels? Well, let's look at the very next verse, verse 7. He says, in a similar way. So there's some similarity here between these angels and whatever they did to cause them to be bound up and locked up for judgment eternally and the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. So now we have some idea. There was sexual immorality and perversion, apparently perverted sexual immorality in such a way that it goes against God's design So did the angels do something against God's design? Did they cross over some boundary? Much as this perversion that we know about that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah crossed over a boundary, did it not? So did these angels cross over some kind of boundary that God had set for them? Did they they left their own domain and they left the spiritual realm and came into the temporal realm and saw these women cohabitated with them? Well, we go back to chapter 6. 
That seems to be what happened. There is no other reasonable explanation. Now, I know there's other explanations offered, but if you tie these verses together, there is no other reasonable explanation you can draw. Something despicable happened. And these angels took the initiative to bring it about. Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. He is mortal. His days will be 120 years. God says, I am not going to put up with this anymore. Things have gotten so bad. The moral and spiritual character of the pre-flood era had so degenerated now, and especially after the demonic takeover, obviously, of verses 1 and 2 that it was apparent that people had become so hopelessly corrupt as to be beyond redemption. Beyond redemption. They had so completely and irrevocably resisted the Holy Spirit's witness. They, these people had become absolutely vile. But not only, it's not only just their own sin nature, it's now that there's a whole new race of people. What's the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you recall? Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 8. He says the Holy Spirit's job in the world is to do what? Anybody remember? Convict the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit convinces people about sin, their own sin. The Holy Spirit convinces people about what true righteousness is. The Holy Spirit convinces people about judgment. He does that. And so now these people have so, so completely seared their conscience, if you will, and it is possible to do that, isn't it? To so harden yourself. That God says it's futile any longer to contend, it's futile any longer for him to strive with men. I'm not going to put up with it. They've passed the point of, of no return. They are irrevocably hardened. They've resisted my spirit. But God would still be patient for another 120 years. He's going to give them another 120 years. Is that amazing? Is that absolutely amazing? Verse 4, we're told about the Nephilim. There's not a lot known about the Nephilim, who they were. Some commentators think that the Nephilim were possibly the offspring of these demonic human unions. No, one's, no one knows for sure. We're just told that they were giants. Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, there's a reference when the 12 spies went into the Promised Land to, to spy it out from Kadesh Barnea. Then they saw the Nephilim. We're told that the Nephilim were there, giants in the land. God had made man in his own image, hadn't he? God had made man in his own image to respond with a heart of love to God's love. God wanted a relationship with us. He created us for relationship. He loves us. He wants us to respond to his love with love. And indeed, John says that. John says, uh, we love because he first loved us. But now we're told in verses 5 and 6, we're told that every inclination of the hearts 
of the thoughts of a man's heart was only evil all the time. What an incredible indictment. This is the truth about man. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. What does that mean? It's just, I'm all, my, my whole life is always going towards evil. Left to my own self, left to my own devices, I'm going to choose evil every time. I'm going to go downhill every time. You may say, no, not me. I would never do that. Good for you. See, man is not, as we're told, as we're told and taught to believe, as we've been seduced into believing, man is not basically good. Man is basically evil. That's the truth. We don't want to hear it. But until you come to grips with that truth, you'll never come to grips with the fact that you need a Savior. You never. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Protest, protest, protest. Man had been told to multiply on the earth, to fill the earth. What a glorious commission. And he has filled the earth, but he's filled it now, we're told, with violence. Violence. God was grieved that he had made man on the earth. His heart was filled with pain, we're told, in verse 6. What a terrible, terrible thing. So God pronounces judgment. He pronounces judgment, but there was to be one exception to the judgment. Who was the exception? Noah, verse 8. Listen to this. Listen to this statement in verse 8. But Noah, what, found favor with the Lord. Noah found favor with the Lord. Did Noah find favor because he was a good man? Was Noah a good man because he found favor? What do you think? How are we, how are we saved? By grace. The word favor and grace are equivalent words, equivalent terms. Beloved, this is, this is salvation. This is exactly how it happens. Notice the order of events here. He found favor with God. How did you find yourself here in this church? How did you find yourself believing? How did you find yourself coming to faith? What, did you make it up? Did you one day think, oh, I think I'll be a Christian today? It sounds like a good thing to do. Did you do that all by yourself? No. You may think you did, but the truth is that you found favor with God, and you didn't find favor with God because you're so cute. No. God made you alive. God regenerated you. God called you. The Bible clears, clearly tells us that. He found favor with God. God chose to favor him. He chose to pick him out. He's going to use Noah to continue his purpose. It's nothing Noah did to deserve it. This is God's grace and mercy. Aren't you glad that God was gracious and merciful to you? To pick you out, to call on you, and to say, I want you, I want you, I'm going to pluck you as a brand from the fire? That's exactly what he did for Noah. 
And it was through Noah that he's going to preserve the seed of the woman and the true line of faith. It's through Noah that God is going to do this. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You and I, beloved, have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But it's not based on anything we've done or anything we are. It's his simple favor and grace to us. And then we're told that Noah was a righteous man. When you find favor with God, when you come to faith, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of any works that any man that you can do. When you come to faith, you are declared what? Righteous. Noah was declared righteous. He was a righteous man. And then that righteousness worked its way out. Look at what he says next. Blameless among the people of his time. He lived out a practical righteousness that was based on the righteousness that was given to him. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, talks about the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's apart from the law. It has nothing to do with the commandments. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. Same principle holds true for Noah. He gets saved the same way you and I get saved. By faith. And notice the last part. And he what? He walked with God. He walked with God. He found favor with God. He was declared righteous. He was blameless among the people of his time. He walked with God. You and I are to what? Walk with God. Walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. If you read on into chapter 7, we'll do that four times. Four times it is said of Noah that he did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. Is it possible to do everything that the Lord has commanded us? Apparently it is. Noah did it. And Noah lived at the wickedest time on the face of the earth. And he was all alone. He didn't have a church body to be part of. He didn't have a mini church to support him. He didn't have fellowship to support him. He lived in the most godless Time on the face of this earth, so bad that God's going to destroy every living thing. Is it possible to do all that God commands you? Yes, apparently. Isn't that exciting? I mean, I, I can do everything that God calls me to do? Yes. How? How? Because God will give me the strength. Beloved, all we have to do is believe it. Rather than make excuses, say, well, I'm imperfect, I can't do this, I'm weak, I'm a wimp, you know. I'm... No, no, God, God has redeemed us and set us free from the power of sin so that you and I can walk with him, so that you and I can do everything he commands us to do. If we don't believe it, we won't. It is by faith again, isn't it? This whole Christian life, this whole Christian life, realizing the power and the, and, the, and the resources of God in our life is by faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 16, the promise comes by faith. 
God, I need your strength. I believe you're strengthening me. I believe your strength is there for me. I'm going to take a step of faith and realize your strength. Am I making sense? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter, in referring back to Noah, calls him a preacher of righteousness. He preached what he lived by his life, by his words. As far as we know, we, he preached probably hundreds of years. And guess what? He had no converts. <laughs> Except his kids, and he had to drag his kids in. He worked in the family business, building a big boat. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, another testimony. In that great hall of fame of faith, book of Hebrews, by faith Noah, now notice this, when warned about things not yet seen. What were the things not yet seen? Rain, an ark. You remember the Bill Cosby, uh, some of you remember the Bill Cosby little sketch on Noah? This is Noah. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> he says, I want you to build an ark. He says, right. What's an ark? <laughs> he never seen one. It never rained. But he what? By faith, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy what? Fear. Holy fear. How much do you fear God? Sometimes we talk so much about the love of God, we lose sight of the fact that He is holy. He is holy, and we need to be taken by a sense of holy dread. Not complacent. He's not our celestial chum. He is our Heavenly Father. And we need to hold Him in awesome reverence and fear. In holy fear, He built that ark to save His family. By faith, He condemned the world just by His preaching, just by how He lived His life, just by building the ark. The world stood condemned by what was going to be done. That, that ark was prophetic. And He became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. It's all faith. I believe this. I believe this book. I believe what it says here. I'll stake my life on it. And I'll do all that he's commanded me to do. Because I believe this is true. This is the only way. God would preserve the seed of the woman through Noah. Don't forget this incredible warfare going on in the heavenlies that you and I cannot see. It's going on and it's waged, being waged as we are here in this room this morning. An incredible battle for the souls of men and women and children. And God is at work. Verses 11 through 13 rehearses the reasons for the coming destruction. You can read that. Verse 13 says that God says that both the inhabitants of the earth and the earth. Second Peter 
Again, chapter 3, verse 6, by water also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. It wasn't just life. The world was destroyed. Everything in that pre-flood era was completely destroyed and changed. The world today is not like it was in the beginning as God created it. It has been subjected to frustration and futility now. Romans chapter 8. Now look at verse 14. This is interesting. Verse 14, he says, Go make, So make yourself an ark out of cypress wood, or some translations say gopher wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Now that's interesting. Coat it with pitch. Make it, what? Waterproof. Let me take you a little step further. The word for pitch in the Hebrew is kofer. Kofer, that word is different from that used in other places in the Old Testament for pitch. This is an interesting word, kofer. What makes it interesting is it is the equivalent to the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover. Which means to cover. In the noun form, kafar means simply a covering. Now stay with me. This is also the word, the first word, kofar, equivalent to kafar. Kofar is also the word used in the Hebrew in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, translated atonement. The pitch is prophetic. Cover it with pitch on the inside and the out. The life of the creature is in the blood I've given you to make atonement for yourselves. On the altar, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The pitch was the perfect covering for the ark to keep out the waters of judgment. And the blood of the sacrificial lamb protected the sinner from the judgment of God. Isn't that interesting? What a subtle nuance. Prophetic. Cover it with pitch. And it's not the ordinary word for pitch. Different word. Verse 16 tells us, he says, this is, verse, verse 15, says, this is how you are to build it. The ark is be 450 feet long. That's one and a half times the size of a football field. That's incredibly big. It's to be 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It's higher than a four-story building. Incredible. The ark was such that it, as he made it, it was 1.4 million cubic feet in terms of volume. It was about two times the size of this building at least. In size. Is that mind-blowing? The ark? How long did it take him to build it? 100 years. 100 years. 100 years of his neighbors going, what are you building? <laughs> an ark? What's an ark? You'll find out. Why are you building it? It's going to rain. What's rain? You're going to find out. <laughs> Repent. 
Repent. A hundred years. How long have you prayed for somebody in your life and there's no change and you're thinking you're going to give up? A hundred years he's building that, that ark. Now look at verse 16. He says, make a roof for it, finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Have some room for ventilation. I imagine you get a little stuffy in there with all those animals. Put a door in the side of the ark. Put a, does that sound vaguely familiar? Door, the word door? Put a door in the side of the ark. The ark was to have a door in it, a door in its side. That was the only door in the ark. The only way that people could gain entrance and egress from the ark. There's only one way. One way in. There's only one way. Jesus calls himself in John 14, 6, the way. But even more particularly, in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, he calls himself the door. I'm the door to the sheepfold. I'm the door to the resting place. I'm the door to the place of security for the sheep to come in and find peace and rest. He's the door. Verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark and you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground who will come to you to be kept alive. How many people have pets? Wouldn't it be nice if your pets always just came to you? <laughs> I mean, I'm not even talking about kids. I'm just talking about pets. <laughs> we have three doggies, and we have one doggie, Annabelle. Doesn't always come. I think, oh Lord, why can't you just make her come to us when we call her? He says, you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Verse 22, and read this out loud with me. Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. He didn't say, but, 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 but. I don't understand, but, but, did, did. Noah did everything the Lord had commanded of him. Beloved, we can do that if we will. God will give us the strength. He gives us the ability. He's promised it. It comes by faith. We can do everything he's called us to do. Now, between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, Noah does not hear from God for a hundred years. You're out there building that ark in your front yard. All your neighbors are laughing at you, mocking you. You're going, and you don't hear from God for a hundred years? Would you wonder, did I hear right? <laughs> but nevertheless, he what? He persevered. He kept on. He kept on. He kept on doing all that God commanded him to do, didn't he? 
God honors obedience. He honors obedience. And then he hears from God. And then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. Literally, the translation from the Hebrew would be better understood. You could read it this way, come into the ark. God would be with him in that ark. Doesn't Jesus say, I'll be with you to the end of the age? I'll never leave you nor forsake you? You could better translate that, come into the ark. You and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now. Ooh, seven more days, it's going to happen. This is the seven-day grace period. I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. You know what's interesting? Is that because of the present atmospheric conditions, it is impossible, impossible for it to rain 40 days and 40 nights? You say, well, how could it do it then? Remember there was that, that, the, the, the waters above the firmament presumably collapsed on the earth. There's a lot of water up there. 40 days and 40 nights. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. There it is again. That's for our benefit, I think. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. Young man. Oh, he lived to 950. He's middle-aged. Noah and his sons, his wife's sons, and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, birds of all the creatures that moved along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wiser's three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female, every living thing as God commanded Noah. And then the Lord, notice this, shut him in. The Lord encompassed him about. The Lord was his rear guard. The Lord shut him in. Noah didn't pull the door up. Noah didn't close the door. God closed the door. God sealed it for him. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a seal of our redemption. God closed the door. Amazing. 
For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as its waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. This was a worldwide flood. This was not some localized overflow of some lake or river. This is a worldwide flood. All the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And I love this. But God remembered Noah. Didn't forget him. God, it seems like I'm out here in this midst of the desert, do you remember me? Yeah. God remembered Noah. He remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and, this, and he sent a wind over the earth. There had not been wind up to this point. The climate had been such that it was an even temperate climate all the way around the globe until the collapse of that canopy. And now there are temperature variations. And the temperature variations coming off the waters would produce, as we understand, high-pressure and low-pressure systems, which result in wind. I read an article yesterday about hurricanes, and researchers today are talking about hypercanes. Winds, winds that are unimaginable. I wonder if this may have been a wind, a great wind, a hypercane, if you will, to begin that process of evaporation and to move the waters as well as allowing them to naturally drain. And the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Mountains of Ararat are in Armenia. Between Turkey and Russia. Heretofore, unexplored. No, no one would, could get up there. Security risks, problems. Some people say the ark is still up there, the remains of it. We don't know. But what I think is fascinating is it came to rest. It came to rest, notice this, on the 17th day of the seventh month. Do you know that according to the Jewish civil calendar, not the religious calendar, the Jewish civil calendar, that Jesus rose from the dead, on the 17th day of the seventh month. The ark came to rest. 
judgment had passed. It's a new day. Are there any parallels there, do you think? The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove had returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. They were in that ark for 53 weeks. 53 weeks. And Noah left the ark. Is that what it says? I want you to notice something here. You look out, the ground is dry. The earth is dry. Doesn't it make sense to leave the ark? But he what? He waits. He waits on the Lord. He did everything the Lord had commanded him. He, he knows what it means to wait for the Lord. Not to rush ahead, not to take matters into his own hands, not to force something, not to act out of panic. He's going to wait for the Lord. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. Come out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and their wives bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Now look what Noah does next. He, the first thing he does, first thing he does when he comes out of the ark is what? Worships God. Offers a sacrifice. Worships God. Seek first. He's going to make a house for himself. Doesn't even go exploring. Doesn't do anything. First thing he wants to do, Alan, is what? Worship God. He offers a sacrifice. Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though, even though man is not different, even he's not changed, he's still the same. 
even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Apparently now they need their diet supplemented. Before the flood, they're vegetarians. Now we get steak. I love that. Byproduct of the fall. He says, verse 4, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Someone asked me the other day, they said, well, does that mean I can't eat my steak rare anymore? No, you're not supposed to eat, drink and eat blood. Those are the juices. You must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Why? Why? And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Now here comes the institution of government right here. Here's the institution of human government. God institutes government. And he does so by instituting capital punishment for murder. This is why I believe in capital punishment, because God believes in it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. Even an animal that takes a man's life is to be, is to be killed. Why? Because God has made us special. Though we are sinners, though we are fallen, we are still created in his image. We are to be accorded that honor in all of his creation. As for you, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth, increase upon it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you with your descendants after you, with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. And here's this covenant. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Will the earth be destroyed again? Yes, but by fire, not by water, by fire. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Woo! 
God has done an awesome thing. He is continuing his plan and his purpose. He is going to bring about the birth of the seed of the woman. And all the forces of hell, as you'll see, will continue to read and study. They're going to come against and against and against and against that plan. But God's plan shall prevail. Now what about all this? What do we get out of all this? We are called to live by what? By faith. We are called to trust God. We are called to believe that he is sovereignly in charge. And we are called to believe that in such a way that our confidence in him is sure. That we do all that he's commanded us to do. We're to learn from Noah. Be men and women of faith. The writer of the Hebrews says, let's encourage one another. Let's let's consider how we might incite one another on to love and good deeds. All the more as we see the day coming the day approaching. Noah did all he could, a preacher of righteousness. Beloved, you and I have a tremendous, tremendous trust that we've been given. Let's live for the Lord Jesus Christ, shall we? Shall we live for the Lord Jesus Christ? Shall we beckon people who are standing in the way of judgment? Shall we call out to them? Shall we beckon to them? Come, come, enter the ark and be protected. Father, thank you. Lord, we, we see this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But we know that through it all, your purposes will prevail. God, thank you. But you've given us a role to play, a part to play. The Bible says that we are in spiritual warfare. But like Noah, we stand firm in faith. As we come to your table this morning to take communion... Lord, we know that every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts are evil all the time. And this is true from our childhood. Lord, we ask you to show us and cause us to see our foolishness, our sinfulness, that we might repent, turn away like Noah from all the godlessness and the wickedness. Help us to acknowledge our sins, confess them. Confident that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, your word says that you will give grace to the humble. We need grace. We need mercy. We come humbly to your table and we come confidently to receive your restoring, healing, strengthening grace. Thank you, Lord. Amen.